You don't hear oncologists say to their patients when they leave the office, you need to change your nutritional habits. You need to take these supplements. There's no patent for natural products. So no one's going to spend a billion dollars to create these products and push them. The economic influences, the monetary incentives impede progress with cancer. Welcome to the Problematic Podcast, a show that gives you the chance to be the hero in helping solve some of the world's largest problems. Find out which teams need your skills today at problematic.app. And now here's your host, Sean Tierney. Okay, two quick bits of information before we dive into this episode with Rick. Uh, one, I'm very proud to announce that we had our first ever hackathon here in Lisbon this last weekend. Uh, this is the idea that this podcast is a little bit different and we actually want to just use the podcast as a jumping off point to actually start to implement some of the solutions that we propose in these interviews. And so we had 12 volunteers uh, and a, a t one of the teams of six came up with a clickable prototype for uh, a browser extension that we actually discussed in the Kyla Raby interview on human trafficking. Um, so this is some great progress. It was really great uh, to see these people come together in just a matter of hours actually produce something uh, that you know makes this idea a lot more real. So if you wanna be a part of the team that is helping bring this to life and actually turn it into an actual browser extension, um, go ahead and go to our website, that's problematic.app problematic.app uh, and create yourself a free account and introduce yourself in the forums. Um, so I have actually added some discussion capabilities now to the website um, and it's actually a super powerful system. We, we can now basically layer chat around uh, episodes and problems and solutions and begin to have a lot more interaction with the listeners. Uh, the, the vision here is that this isn't just a one-way street, that we actually build a relationship with the listeners and start to put uh, you know, some real execution to the ideas that we talk about on these episodes. Um, so that said, that's a very promising development. <laughs> Unfortunately, uh, a negative development here is I just realized the episode I just recorded with Rick Unfortunately, my side of the audio is super tinny. It sounds like I'm talking in a tin can, and that's because uh, it recorded from the wrong audio interface. It picked up my AirPods instead of the professional mic that I typically use. Um, so if you can put up with it though, I, I still chose to release this episode because I think it's that important. Uh, cancer is something that affects all of us. I think probably just about everyone uh, you talk to knows someone, either a relative or a friend who's been touched by it. So it's a really important topic. Uh, Rick is incredibly knowledgeable. He's over 25 years of expertise in this field, talked to some of the leading doctors and has uh, compiled a, a, a very thoughtful book on the subject. And so uh, this was a, a, a really important conversation. So I, in spite of the bad audio, I'm choosing to release it. And I just ask that you tolerate my side of the audio. The good news is, is I don't do most of the talking. I just ask a few questions here and there. So if you can put up with uh, me sounding like I'm in a tin can, this is a very, uh, uh, an eye-opening interview that I hope you enjoy. And with that said, here is that interview. All right, welcome everyone to the Problematic Podcast. I'm your host, Sean Tierney. And today I am here with Rick Shapiro. Rick is author of the Amazon best-selling book, Hope Never Dies a book that chronicles the true stories of 20 people who were told that they had stage four terminal cancer who are now thriving today. His passion is researching and educating people on effective evidence-based integrative treatments and therapies with the goal of helping to guide them optimize their chances to control and beat cancer. 
Rick has been a guest speaker at many national conferences. Uh, he's also a personal friend, and I'm excited to have him. Rick, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks, John. So let's start at the very beginning for our listeners. Let's just back up like we know nothing. Can you define cancer? What is cancer? Well, cancer is, there are many, there's lots of definitions of cancer, and there's many different kinds of cancer. But basically, it's a dysfunction, uh, abnormal growth of cancer cells, which can grow and become very dangerous to the human body. Uh, They can metastasize. They can travel to other parts of the body. But cancer cells are cells that do not die when they're supposed to. Normal cells, they grow, they divide, and they die. There's a process called apoptosis. Apoptosis is that process where cells grow and they die. Cancer cells do not die. Imagine if you had a neighbor, and that neighbor had their parents and grandparents and great-grandparents living there, they would keep living. And you'd have great-great-great-great-great-grandparents living there, and nobody would ever die. And eventually, it can create a beachhead in the body, a beachhead meaning essentially a tumor, which then can be dangerous to the human body. But it's uncontrolled uh, problems uh, and dysfunction with the DNA, and there are obviously many causes as to why that happens. Yep. And you have become somewhat of an expert on this. How many years have you been studying this field? Well, essentially, ever since my father died of cancer in 1996, I've taken a very serious interest in this field and a much more serious interest over the last 20 years. He died in 1996. Mm -hmm. So can you talk a little bit like you wrote a book, an Amazon bestselling book? Uh, It's let me see here. It's got uh, gosh, I haven't even looked most recently, you'll know better than I, but however many five-star reviews, it was an Amazon bestseller. You had Dr. Oz as one of the reviewers. You interviewed all these amazing people. What? So can you talk about what motivated you to write that book? Sure. Uh, in 1996, my father was diagnosed with cancer. Actually, he was diagnosed with cancer and had cancer prior to 96. He had an episode with breast cancer, uh, then prostate cancer, and then an aggressive lymphoma in 1996. It was determined that the best way to approach this lymphoma was with an aggressive chemotherapeutic uh, protocol. And he had one dose of chemotherapy, and he almost died from that chemotherapy dose. And it was in Scottsdale, Arizona. I felt helpless. I felt hopeless. The nurses felt he wouldn't make it through the night. He died several weeks later. And uh, I just wondered if there was a better way, because I saw the harsh effects as it impacted him, which were so terrible, I wouldn't even describe it on air with you. It was so horrible. Uh, So he passed away, and I just started wondering if there was a better way to approach cancer instead of utilizing these harsh therapies that uh, can impact the body so devastatingly, if you will. Uh, You know, modern medicine says do no harm, essentially. But I just wondered if there was something that we could do to change the environment. So he, he died of cancer. And I just started wondering uh, about other protocols, methodologies, therapies, and treatments. In 2001, I had a very scary experience. I decided to increase my life insurance. I had a blood test for that. The uh, text came, the nurse came to my office and they called me a few days later and said, we will give you more life insurance, but we're not going to give you the best rates. And I said, why not? They said, because your liver enzymes are really quite high. I went to my doctor and he said, yes, your liver enzymes are high. <clears throat> and then he did an ultrasound, a CAT scan. He sent me to a specialist and they took eight vials of blood out of me. And at this point in time, my liver was 
experiencing pain every day, about 12 times a day. It felt like somebody was squeezing a vice, and but they were squeezing my liver, hypothetically. So I decided that uh, I needed to do something. The doctor said, I want to do a biopsy on your liver because my liver enzymes were escalating uh, astronomically through the roof. So I decided that I was going to make changes in my diet. I said, give me 30 days before we do a biopsy. And if in 30 days, my numbers start coming down towards the normal range, we will put off this biopsy because liver biopsies are not a lot of fun. So I made massive transformational changes in my nutritional habits. I read a book by an Australian doctor, a European doctor, talking about the power of nutrition. So in terms of making these nutritional changes and supplementation, where I incorporated certain supplements into my diet, which I had never done before, plus exercise, I moved my numbers dramatically from this astronomically high number where they wanted to do a biopsy and they were suspicious I might have liver cancer to the normal range. It took about six months to get to normal, but in 30 days, I was materially bringing my numbers down. So this made me think for the first time, Sean, that maybe nutritional changes and other things which were not necessarily pharmaceutical in nature could alter the disease process. That made me think about writing a book. Well, and one other thing as well, in the year 2010, I was doing some research now into other things that might be very helpful, non-pharmaceutical, non-conventional. In 2010, I found a cancer conference in Florida, got on the phone with the sponsor and head of this conference and, and called her incessantly for three or four weeks, asking lots of questions and uh, decided to go to this conference, which was integra integrative and alternative in nature. I went with open-minded skepticism because there's all kinds of definitions of the word alternative, of course. There are some alternative things that can be profoundly beneficial and powerful, and there are some things that may not work at all. So I went to Florida, I was there for four days, and I heard experts talk for four days. There were medical doctors, there were scientists, there were people who had gone through uh, cancer situations, and I got back on the plane, flying back to Phoenix, thinking, you know what, there is something to this integrative and alternative world. It should not be all about chemo, surgery, and radiation. And this impelled me to get more involved in researching things. And since then, I've only been to 30 con cancer conferences, spoken at national conferences, and decided to write this book because I came across people. One more thing I should address regarding your question. I met people who were told that they had three weeks to live, one month to live, three months to live by major cancer centers in this country, in the United States, and who were here 10, 15, and 20 years later. So I wanted to learn about their stories. Why were they, why were they here? Shouldn't we perhaps re-engineer what they did and evaluate what they did after they were told they had a short time period to live by so-called conventional experts? I felt the world so, needed uh, to know these things. So I'm going to ask you to do the impossible, which is this. So you've done, you've now had over 25 years of research in this field and you've met with some of the top scientists. I'll read off a few of the names for the people uh, that might recognize these names. Keith Block, uh, Gene Wallace, Robert Nagorny, Donnie Yance, Dwight McKee. So you've met with some of the top people in this field. If you had only five minutes to tell someone, a relative or a friend, you know, these are the changes that you can make early in life. These are the things you should do. 
Like, what would you communicate in those five minutes from everything you've learned where dietary exercise, all this stuff, like, what do you tell that person? I'll time you just so we, we don't go over the limit, but what, what do you say in those five minutes? Early in life, in other words, so they're hypothetically healthy and they have not been diagnosed a, a number of things. And there's basically four areas that I think are quite important. Nutrition is paramount, usually important. Think about it. Everyone on this planet puts food into their body, correct? Uh, fuel. There's an old cliche, which is so true. You are what you eat. Garbage in, garbage out. If you put bad fuel into your body, the results and the outcomes will not be good. So it's critical to have excellent nutrition uh, with respect to, in terms of your whole life. Supplementation. Now, supplementation gets a bad rap quite frequently, Sean. People think, oh, you know, it's a bunch of garbage and, and who knows if it really works. There's no proof. Well, that's not true at all. There are excellent supplements and there are hundreds of supplements and everyone should take different types depending on the nutritional deficiencies that they may have. But there are certain supplements that, that are, are extremely important. I'm not saying you need to take 20 supplements per day, but there's a few that can be profoundly helpful. So certain types of nutritional changes, we can get into that more about what kind. Supplementation, which is important. Exercise is critical. Bring oxygen-rich blood to your system. Exercise uh, just helps you sleep at night, and quality sleep is so critical. So nutrition, supplementation, exercise, and stress reduction. Everybody has stress in their life, some more than others. And there's various ways to mitigate stress, obviously. And, and stress weakens your immune system. If you have a weak immune system, you are incapable of fighting disease that you might come uh, that you might face in the course of your everyday life. So nutrition, supplementation, exercise, and reducing stress are critically important. There's other offshoots of those things, and there's other things under those headings. But I think those are four critical things that we can do in our lives. And we can do ourselves. We don't need drugs for those things. We don't even need to go to the doctor. We can self-advocate and, and create a healthy body and a healthy immune system. Yeah. So I read about half of your book. I read all the stories with the different, the 20 different terminally ill people. Um, so I got a lot of the information through that. And I've subsequently read a book by Dr. Michael Greger, whom you know, uh, as well as Matthew Walker. And those two books are How Not to Die, uh, Michael Greger talking about basically advocating a plant-based diet, and then Matthew Walker, uh, Why We Sleep, and talking about the sleep component of it. And it it strikes me that both of those corroborate a lot of what I saw in your book in terms of advocating, you know, whole food, plant-based diets, exercise, sleep, uh, stress reduction, and kind of this framework that you just laid out, uh, you know, in those few minutes. Um, how do you approach nutrition? Let's start there. Like, what are you, uh, supplementation or the, the, the whole food diet way. Like, how are you combining those things? What do you, what do you do yourself? Or is there like a playbook that the average person can go read somewhere and say, what do I need? And how do I know what I need? Like, what, what do you advocate there? Well, that, that's a, about a two hour answer, but I'll get into it. Yeah, sure. I'm sure it is. <laughs> sure. sure. Uh, you know, nutrition, like I said, is, is critically important. More specifically, um, you walk into a supermarket, everything that's in a can, uh, you know, in, in plastic bags is, is processed. Processed food is just not what Mother Nature intended for us to eat. But most of it is. Uh, even vegetables, you go to the vegetable section, a lot of those vegetables 
are tainted with pesticides, herbicides, and other chemicals as well. Uh, again, if you're eating vegetables that have chemicals in it, you're putting chemicals into your body. So not a great idea. In terms of animal protein, you mentioned plant-based plant -based diets. I am not a vegetarian. I am not a vegan. But if you do eat animal protein, uh, the kind of animal protein that you eat is critically important. For example, if you eat fish, wild fish is much more healthy than farmed fish, if you will. Uh, if you eat beef, uh, grass pasture-fed beef is much more healthy than the stuff and the junk that they are fed. Uh, and they are often fed antibiotics and other things to make them grow faster, to make cows grow faster, uh, so they have a lot more meat to cut up for your local steakhouse. Uh, as well as poultry, the kind of food that they eat. You, know, you want to have range-free poultry. So how they, how they grow and, and how they are processed is critically important, instead of the junk we see in, in most supermarkets. So nutrition is critically important. Stay away from processed food. Stay away from confectionery junk, things that are infused with sugar, added sugar, because sugar is the enemy. Sugar is what cancer loves. They are gluttons for sugar. Now, a lot of people call it glucose, but it's essentially the same thing, sugar and glucose. So stay away from sugar. There's such a thing called carbohydrates, simple and complex. Complex carbohydrates are found in vegetables. Simple carbohydrates are simply bad. That's how I remember it. Pasta, white rice, white potatoes. They turn into sugar as soon as they hit your stomach. Not a good idea to go there certainly in quantity. So plant-based diets are important. If you eat animal protein, make that the appetizer. Don't make that, don't have a huge T-bone steak uh, with, with potatoes, with butter slathered all over it. Not a healthy thing. The kinds of things that you drink, also soda, it, it's got so much sugar in it, so much garbage. And I would stay away from that. Water is a great drink. Tea can be excellent. Uh, but the food you eat is so critical. You mentioned supplements, I think. Uh, supplementation. There is so much evidence that it can be so powerful. Now, doctors will say it's not doesn't work. We don't know if it works. But we have to go to the concept of evidence. What? How do the doctors and hospitals make decisions as to what interventions they will bring to the table for you, the patient? They are. It's a drug society, pharmaceutical society. They look at the FDA. Let's take that back. Let's unwind that a little bit. Pharmaceutical companies make drugs. It takes oftentimes 10 plus years to make these drugs and one to $2 billion to create these drugs. Tufts University came out with a study just a few years ago that said it cost, on average, $2.5 billion with a B, not million, $2.5 billion from creation and conception of the drug concept all the way to drug approval. Now they have to go what's what's called they have to go through drug cell lines they look at things under a microscope to see if the drug works they go through animal studies a phase one study with perhaps 50 to 100 people phase two might be 300 people phase three might be 3,000 people and it, it takes a long time and costs obscene amounts of money now what's the reward at the end of the day they can get a patent a patent which protects the sale of this drug for 20 years and with that patent Think about all the TV commercials we see today that are pushing drugs. You didn't see those commercials 20 years ago. It's become big, big business. So <clears throat> doctors only prescribe things that are drugs that are approved, and there are patents that protect this. You will never see a 
something called curcumin, for example, or green tea extract or quercetin or vitamin C being pushed by doctors. There's no money in it. And the other reason why you will never see a phase three study with natural products is because you can't protect it. You and I, Sean, hypothetically could go produce uh, curcumin. We can have a contract manufacturer produce bottles of curcumin. We can sell it online and no one stops us. There's no patent for natural products. So no one's going to spend a billion dollars to create these products and push them. So supplements, one more thing, PubMed.gov. There's a a site called PubMed.gov where there's over 27 million studies. It's the online library for the Natural Institute of Health. If you put the word in curcumin cancer, you'll come up with over 4,000 studies, literally. And if you put the word in green tea cancer, you come up with over 4,000 studies. So yes, there is something to it. So nutrition, supplementation, uh, exercise. I try to exercise every week. I try to eat a healthy diet. I'm not perfect. I do take several supplements myself for my health to support my health. And actually, I have a conventional doctor and I have a naturopathic doctor. I listen to both. Uh, I lean more towards the naturopath, though. Okay, so we're we're starting to get into the root of the problem. And what makes this podcast a little different than most is that we are actually trying to unearth a problem that we can then, our listeners can then begin to help solve and hack on an app or a marketing campaign or something that can begin to unravel this. And to me, I don't think we're going to solve cancer. I think we've got some of the smartest doctors in the world that are already trying to do that. And so I don't expect that we're going to hit it from that angle. But what I see here and what it sounds like we're starting to get to is uh, what's called the cancer industrial complex. Can you talk a little bit about the entities involved, whether it be the pharmaceuticals, the doctors, the insurance companies, how does this stuff relate? And it sounds like you're already talking about the economics of like producing drugs and and why you won't see, you know, turmeric as uh, a recommended, you know, phase three clinical trial for something that's basically free in nature. Um, can you just begin like, so, so help us understand what is the can- cancer industrial complex? What are the entities involved and just kind of high level view sure. of what that is? Okay, sure. Um, the cancer, cancer industrial complex, I, I guess we would say that it involves major pharmaceutical companies. It involves indirectly big agriculture it involves <clears throat> conventional medicine, it involves hospitals, and you mentioned insurance also. What's reimbursable in terms of treatments and therapies? The approach is flawed, in my opinion. And I might even, if I was to put it even cynically, uh, the economic influences, the monetary incentives impede progress with cancer. And thus, results have been quite poor in the cancer world, the cardiovascular world has done much better than the cancer world has in the last 50 years. So economically, as we were discussing, pharmaceutical companies are for-profit, not not not-for-profit, but for-profit enterprises. They want to make as much money as they can for their shareholders. So they will push out drugs, and in fact, they will push out new drugs, which might be a tiny bit better in terms of response rate when they go through these studies, 3% better, to come out with new drugs, to sell more drugs, uh, because their old patent may have expired after 20 years. Um, there's also, in terms of this cancer industrial complex, a very narrow-minded attitude about the concept of evidence. We hear about the word evidence-based. So I just was saying that there is plenty of evidence 
epidemiological evidence, observational evidence, case reports, case studies, and clinical evidence that many of the things that I talk about are profoundly beneficial in saving lives, extending lives, and enhancing quality of life. But the cancer industrial complex only looks at things like FDA studies. You'll never see FDA studies regarding natural products that go all the way through a phase three scenario because there's no money in it. You can't get the patent to protect that product or that intervention, that therapy, if you will. Um, and I mentioned PubMed.gov. There's millions of studies. So, yeah, and so from this, though, like you just like with this economic incentive like this, just to highlight this for the people listening, it, it, it tells me that you have to basically be responsible and take your own health matters into your own hands. You have to you cannot trust that, like, for instance, the FDA has your best interest in mind when they make a policy, you know, the food pyramid, which later was turns out it was exactly upside down, uh, that these these government bodies eventually can support there's this regulatory capture thing happening, right? Where it's, it's, uh, so it's just, you cannot basically at the end of the day, like I would prioritize a peer reviewed study by a bunch of doctors who all at least, uh, get in there and do the double blind placebo controlled studies and review that literature and then come up with an answer over what a, a governing body who, you know, takes money from lobbyists and where there's some kind of financial interest involved. You kind of have to then, uh, be the, you know, a little bit of an investigator yourself when it comes to these health matters. Like, would you, would you agree with that or what's your take? Yeah. And I'm not, I'm not, and we can get into the fact that I'm not a hundred percent against certain standard of care. So I think there is a place for them as well, but um, the the approach is flawed and and the approach is, is narrow-minded and the approach is influenced economically as well. There's no money to be made in lifestyle changes. Nobody, nobody, the cancer industrial complex doesn't make, you don't hear oncologists say to their patients when they leave the office, you need to change your nutritional habits. You need to take these supplements. When I went to the doctor for my liver issue, I asked him, I said, will milk thistle help my liver? I read that milk thistle can be helpful to your liver. And his approach was better than others. He says, it won't hurt you, but I don't know if it'll help you. Most others would have said, back when this issue hit me in 2001, 21 years ago, would have said, oh, it's nonsense. At least he was a little bit open-minded. But yes, money influences these issues and you have to self-advocate to a, self-advocate to a large extent. You have to do some research. You have to uh, find people and approaches uh, beyond the strict standard of care because the strict standard of care has not been that successful. I mean, it's nothing to write home about. Yeah. And when you say standard of care, you're referring to surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy. Those are kind of the trifecta of, of things that are tried, yes. right? The main trifecta, there's some, there are some immunological approaches that are currently happening, uh, but we're in the, uh, the dawn of that era. We're at the very, very uh, seminal stages. But yes, primarily chemo, radiation, and surgery are the trifecta. Can you just talk about the just the economics of the procedures maybe specifically chemo what how, how does that work what kind of money are we talking about how does how does it change hands sure chemotherapy is highly unique in the world of pharmaceutical drugs think about this for example let's assume you take a particular drug for a particular condition that you might have who makes money on that well the pharmaceutical company that 
created the drug, makes money. <clears throat> the drugstore, perhaps, that you buy the prescription at, your Walgreens or CVS in the United States, makes money. <clears throat> and that's where the money is made. However, in the chemo world, obviously, the drug company makes money. But guess what? The oncologist makes money on the drugs as well. They buy the drugs at a certain level, <clears throat> and then they build on a profit on top of the amount of money that is paid for those drugs. And it's the only area, the only drugs I know where doctors make money. Because if you go to the doctor, they give you a script, a prescription, that they make money on the chemo drugs. The amount of money they make is over the top. They line people up in their offices. There may be 20 padded chairs, and they infuse the chemo drugs, and the people come in for perhaps six cycles every week or every two weeks, depending on how they tolerate the drugs. And the amount of money is incredible. I've known people who are oncologists who make literally, factually, millions of dollars, plural, per year, because they are really, they're like chemotherapy factories. And uh, you have to wonder about the whether or not the monetary incentive clouds their judgment as to best treatments regarding their patients. I know that's a cynical perspective, but it concerns me. So when, so as a preventative stance, it sounds like before we get there, let's make the nutritional and the exercise and all the preventative changes that we can make that better our odds. But you're saying that there is a place for those uh, interventions when it comes time. If you, if you do succumb to cancer, that then there's a point at which they make sense. Is that accurate? Or like, when does it make sense to, to switch sure. to those? Sure. Well, I don't say switch. I don't, I, I never would ever say switch. Uh, but I would say you, you absolutely should incorporate these other non-standard of care uh, approaches. But it's not, it doesn't have to be an either or. With respect right. to chemotherapy, for example, if you have a very fast-moving cancer, the cancer cells are multiplying like crazy. The, the tumor is growing uh, rapidly by the week, every couple of weeks. You can see by scans, it's growing. Then there is a place to slow down that freight train, that devastating freight train. So chemotherapy could play a role. Now, regarding chemotherapy, there's a better way to do chemotherapy. But I'll get to that in a minute if you would like. There's a much better way than the standard way that it's done. Radiation, uh, same thing. And surgery, if you have a tumor that you can excise, that you can cut out, for example, skin cancer, very simple, and, and excise that, that skin cancer issue, then yes, that's a good approach to take. But chemo, of course, is that one thing that most people fear because of the toxic side effects. But there are things to be done. If you'd like, we can talk about how to mitigate that toxicity. Yeah, absolutely. And that was something that I took from your book is that you, it sounded like there was herbs and things that you could pair it with that would actually dampen the effects of the toxicity on your body and make it a little more palatable? There's, there's several ways. First of all, there's a doctor, a PhD, a doctor named Dr. Walter Longo, L-O-N-G-O, at U the University of Southern California. He's probably the patriarch of fasting, the concept of fasting and the great benefits of fasting. If you fast one to two days prior to your chemo infusion and the day of and the day after, then it mitigates the toxicity dramatically because the cancer cells cannot go into hibernation. Your healthy cells can go into hibernation and become dormant, and they are protected from the toxic effects of chemo. You know, you might say to me, Rick, how can somebody fast two or three days? It's not for everybody. 
It doesn't mean you can't eat anything. It doesn't mean you can't drink anything. You can drink water. You can have light broth. You can have light tea. But if you can do any fasting at all, the day before, the day after, the day after, you will mitigate the toxicity dramatically and enhance the benefit of that chemo, if you will, because it will not affect uh, deleteriously your healthy cancer cells. So that's a place where it, it, it can, and also acupuncture. Anecdotally, there's been a lot of anecdotal evidence, if you will, that acupuncture right after chemo can be profoundly helpful. And as you said, Sean, certain botanicals and vitamins, depending on the chemo regimen, before your chemo, right before and right after, can mitigate toxicity as well. You need to talk to experts about that. But those three things, acupuncture, certain botanicals, and definitely fasting, which anybody can do, can be profoundly beneficial. That's great. Um, and I think the bottom line here is obviously, and I, I should have said this at the beginning, but I'll say it now. Obviously, none of this constitutes medical advice. If you're listening to this, don't drop your radiation therapy or whatever you're doing and go out and you know eat twigs and berries and think you're going to be fine. Like, Do your homework. We're just trying to make you aware of some of the options here, some of the possibility um, treatments that can coexist together. Uh, so I think that's just an important disclaimer that I want to make sure everyone uh, takes seriously. Um, and can, I, can I just address that for one second, Sean? Yeah, please. Yeah. Re regarding that, I, I mentioned a minute ago, you know, talk to experts. There are people out there. There are naturopathic oncologists, if you will, who specialize strictly in oncology, who can be very helpful. There is a group called the Society of, Society of Integrative Oncologists, who are oncologists, cancer doctors, who look at things in a more integrative approach. Uh, the, the five people you mentioned who are in the book, <clears throat> one of them is an expert strictly in the nutrition world. That's Dr. Jean Wallace. She's fantastic. Uh, you've got Donnie Yance, who's an absolute expert in the supplementation world. You've got Dr. Robert McGurney, who's an expert when it comes to doing chemosensitivity testing. So you can pick your right chemo, your chemo drugs before having chemotherapy to know what's going to work best. And then you have, of course, Dr. Keith Block, who is the patriarch of integrative of uh, cancer work, and, and Dr. McKee as well. So there are people out there who can be very helpful. Self-advocate, yes. The internet can be a plus and a minus. There's a lot of garbage in the internet, and there's also some profoundly helpful information on the internet. So I just well, so that was gonna that was actually gonna be my next question for you is with the preponderance of so many different opinions and so much different stuff out there. You know, we're lucky to have someone like Dr. Greger, who's like actually culling through these studies and then presenting the gems and highlighting them and kind of curating that for us. But what do you recommend to someone? How do you make sense of, of what's snake oil and what is actually legitimate science that, that you know, what, 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 what's your filter? It's an important, it's a very important question. It's a great question. Um, yes, there's, there is snake oil out there. There are charlatans out there. There are charlatans on both sides of, of the aisle, if you will. There are those who are charlatans in the alternative world. There are charlatans and people in the oncology world as well who have been convicted of crimes. Actually, I've, I've read about people in that world. Um, it, it's not easy. I don't have an easy. I don't have a list of here's your top 100 <clears throat> um, integrative doctors or healthcare practitioners who can help complement um, your protocol uh, to great results. But like I said a minute ago, there are naturopath. There's a, a group. Uh, if you put into Google naturopath or naturopathic oncologists, you will find 
there's an association of naturopathic oncologists of which there's a couple hundred members throughout the United States and Canada, and you can find them. So just put the word in naturopathic oncologists. In terms of integrative oncologists, put in there society, society of integrative oncology, and you'll find doctors in the integrative world as well. And, and a lot of it's just a little bit of luck, I hate to say it, but do your homework, do your research, find out if someone has credentials, uh, read about them, ask for references, and uh, that's what you need to do. But there's no guidebook of here's the best 100 doctors in the world. What are we talking about in terms of scope of this problem? Like how many people are affected by cancer? Do we, I, I'm sure it's not a, an exact number that sure. we can pull, but like, do you have a feel for a ballpark what we're talking about? Yes. Well, I can tell you in the United, in, the, in the, this country, in the United States, <clears throat> there's uh, about 700,000 people who die every year of cancer and about 1.8 million that are diagnosed. Now let's talk about that for one second. 700,000 people who die of cancer. Okay. So there's about 35,000 people who die of car accidents in the U.S. per year. So multiply that number by 20. In those of us who are a little bit older, the war in Vietnam uh, took the lives of 58,000 U.S. soldiers over 10 years. Well, 700,000 people die in this country from cancer. That's 58,000 over 10 years. It is the number one killer in this country tied with heart disease at this point, I'm told. And it will pass heart disease very, very soon. Uh, because heart disease, cardiovascular disease, when it comes to strokes uh, and heart attacks, has made much greater progress than cancer. We've made incremental progress. We're nipping at the edges, really, of cancer. We still have not found this so-called magic bullet. And there is no magic bullet, by the way. There's no one drug. Mm -hmm. it's, you have to bring together a variety, a, a comprehensive, multifaceted approach delivered by sophisticated healthcare practitioners based, Sean, on objective criteria, that means blood work, that means tissue samples, to come up with the best approach to fight cancer, both to build the immune system and to cytotoxically, in other words, kill cancer cells, building the immune system from within and fighting cancer directly. It's a multifaceted approach. I want to zero in on something you just said, because this was another takeaway from your book that I was not aware that there radiation is not just a one size fits all thing. It sounds like you can actually, or, or, or chemo, that you can dial these treatments in based on the quality of the tissue samples, like different attributes. I didn't get the exact science or what they're looking for, but my takeaway was that by doing a little proactive um, analysis and sampling that then calibrating the treatment to that particular person's situation that they can get a far more effective outcome. Can you speak to that? Sure. Yeah. There are two doctors that I'm aware of in the United States. One is Dr. Robert Nagurney and Dr. Larry Wiesenthal. They're both located in California <clears throat> who have, I think, the most unique, uh, what's called chemosensitivity test in the world. I've talked to doctors literally from Germany who said these two guys in Southern California have the best test in the world. And what they do, they have different laboratories. Uh, Nagurney is an active oncologist and has a lab, and Wiesenthal is also an oncologist, but not a practicing oncologist, but he does have his lab as well. They will excise, they will take a one gram sample of the actual malignancy of the actual tumor. And they can do this also with, with uh, leukemia as well, uh, blood and, and lymphoma but solid tumors or blood samples. And they will test it under the microscope against 
a dozen different chemotherapeutic drugs, some cocktails, in other words, combination drugs, where they'll have a couple of different chemo drugs, some singular drugs to see what works best against your actual tissue sample. You can't get more personalized than that. So it's not based on a study of 200,000 people over the course of time. It's customized to you. And when they, they can see if this a particular chemo drug is having a direct response, an effect on that cancer, and then they will recommend, obviously, that chemotherapeutic approach. So you don't go through the effects and the side, harsh side effects of chemo not knowing if it's going to work or not. Um, yeah. And that, that, that makes a ton of sense. Like, if you can important. validate something up front before you take on the, the downside risk of it, why would you not? I, I just don't understand why this isn't common practice in every procedure. I mean, just, other than the cost, it, it it's 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 ludicrous. It's shameful. There, there was somebody in my book, and a woman named Dr. Elizabeth Pankey, actually an MD and a PhD, and she had ovarian cancer, and she was given chemo by a major cancer, uh, a major cancer center. And she was going downhill. They tried a second uh, line of defense with another type of chemo drug. She was going downhill. She found a gurney online. She was very fortunate. She flew to, she came from Cincinnati, flew to the LA area, met with the gurney, uh, and he put her through a chemosensitivity test. And she was told in October of 1999 that she wouldn't make it till Christmas. She wouldn't make it two months, that she was a dead woman walking. I hate to put it that way, but that's what they said that you were going to be done in before Christmas, she found the gurney, found the right chemo drug, and here she is. This is now over 20 years later, enjoying her grandkids. She's retired, and he found the right chemo drug because of the test he did. They said that she was done. So there's great value in finding the right drug. You can combine that with other approaches to mitigate toxicity and bring to the table all the other things you can do to enhance your immune system. So there's a term in cycling called the aggregation of marginal gains. And it sounds to me like this is very much what's happening here in that it's the summation of all these minor little wins that if you can stack those, that's what leads to a positive outcome. And it's just we, you need the doctors who are willing to go that extra step on each one of those things to then improve your overall odds to stack all those small marginal gains. You talk about stacking these marginal gains, and that, that's correct. And these marginal gains and these approaches – will do such things as mitigating inflammation. Inflammation drives cancer and cancer drives inflammation. Enhancing the immune system, uh, regulating apoptosis we talked about earlier, earlier to make sure cancer cells die. Uh, angiogenesis, for example, to <clears throat> uh, mitigate or eliminate those blood vessels that grow to the tumors that provide glucose to the tumors to allow the tumors to grow, uh, to help detox your body, to... Uh, you know, we may want to talk about epigenetics, for example, uh, but it brings about so many positive things, all of these various influences in the aggregate, as you said. Yeah, there's a, I'll, I'll link to a talk that I saw. I think it was William Lee. It was a TED talk and it's probably 12 years old at this point, but it was a really good talk mm -hmm. on that anti-angiogenesis aspect and mind-blowing in terms of, well, actually, why don't you talk about the epigenetic stuff? Yeah. I think that's yeah. an interesting direction. <clears throat> Dr. Dr. William Lee, spelled L-I, his last, his last name. <clears throat> if you ever have an opportunity, it's about a 20-minute fascinating TED Talk. And he talks about the power of nutrition and how the appropriate foods, ingesting the appropriate foods and avoiding certain other foods can certainly have a major impact on angiogenesis, which, again, is the process of blood vessels 
reaching out and growing towards tumors to provide nutrition to tumors. Tumors require glucose to live or they die. So if we can mitigate and inhibit, inhibit and kill these vessels with the appropriate nutritional approach, it can certainly mitigate the spread of cancer and the growth of cancer tumors. And, and it is a fascinating arena. And it, again, it goes back to nutrition and the many positive influences it has on your body. But compliance is critical, Sean. And not just when you have cancer, not just nutrition in moderation. We always talk about, oh, in moderation, we should do this and, and you know, moderate, moderate approaches. Cancer is a terrible, terrible disease. It's not a friendly disease. It's a terrible disease. So we need to be very serious about adherence and compliance to significant transformational changes. Change your life. Is there, are you aware of any service or, uh, yeah, a service that basically can give you this information? Like I've always wanted, let me just do like a blood sample and stool sample and give me, let me, what am I deficient in? What am I, what do I have too much of? custom tailor, like tell me I'm eating too many, uh, I don't know, onions or something and I should be eating more mushrooms, you know, that type of analysis based on what I like, what my body is doing, not based on like, Oh, you should eat more tomatoes in your diet or something like, you know, like based on actual facts, are you aware of any service like that? Um, not well, Gene Wallace in my, who's in my book. If I was told I had cancer tomorrow, Gene Wallace would be one of my very first phone calls to do a consult with her or her uh, associate, Michelle. And yes, blood, you, you, blood work would be done and significant blood work. And there's certain blood work, blood tests that are identified, in fact, by Dr. McKee in the book, 25 different blood tests, most of which are not done by conventional medicine. And this type of blood work will identify your weaknesses and your strengths. And nutritionally, what, where, what you should uh, bring into your nutritional habits and what you should avoid. For example, CRP, C-reactive protein, is a blood test done for many people, even conventionally, and it indicates your internal inflammation. And again, inflammation internally is not a good thing regarding heart disease or cancer. And there are things you can do to mitigate inflammation. Um, vitamin D tests, you know, can, can determine uh, whether you're in the right range, because I think vitamin D3 is an excellent supplement, and you, you want to do certain things to enhance that. But yes... But no, there's no one service. There's no one go-to place. But I would go to a nutritional expert in the cancer world, and he or she will probably have you do some blood work or naturopaths in the oncology world to assess and identify weaknesses and strengths and what you should do to strengthen your body. Um, I will throw out a name that was given to me by a friend. I have not tried this, so I can't vouch for it, but it was called Biome, V-I-O-M-E. Um, and it sounds like they do a combination. It has to do with uh, like gut biome analysis. So you send them some kind of sample and they come back to you and they tell you, you know, what your body is at, like how it's reacting to things. Um, it sounds like it's along these lines. I haven't tried it. It's not actually available in Portugal where I live, unfortunately. So uh, I'm not able to test it right now. But um, yeah, I mean, this seems anything that's evidence based is really appealing, you know, not just taking a shotgun approach in the dark, like let's actually go uh, do the analysis and figure out exactly what we need. Um, I want to steer us back to this concept of the cancer industrial complex, just because I think it is the one area where we might actually be able to exert some influence. So given what you know of this landscape, you've got the insurance companies, 
that pay for claims. You've got the big pharma companies that obviously spend billions in the with the B on developing these drugs. So they're highly incentivized to make sure that the doctors believe in them. There's all this education. Uh, and I'm sure there's some regulatory capture as well going on. So you have this edifice of stuff that's just inherently going to promote, you know, there's a lot of inertia with it. It's going to stick to what it already is working. And the idea that, oh, no, just eat some turmeric and that has potentially the same effectiveness at helping you as this other thing, that will never get promoted. You will never see that anywhere except a nonprofit like Dr. Greger's Nutrition Facts thing. So what if you could wave a magic wand today and either pass some regulation or have some kind of amazing marketing campaign that promotes awareness? Like, what could you envision that our members could build that would actually help curb this problem? If I had a magic wand to try and uh, beat cancer or improve our odds against cancer, uh, I would try to bring together the change agents, the difference makers in the integrative, complementary, and alternative cancer worlds. Um, I would love it. I was blown away. As an example, when I went to my very first cancer conference, I went with open mind and skepticism. I said, is this stuff for real? Are there, are there, is this just a bunch of charlatans? Or is there something that's you know tremendously meaningful here that can help save lives? I would love it if conventional practitioners <clears throat> went to conferences or were forced to <laughs> with a magic wand. You said magic wand, right? Had to go to a, a conference every year of integrative and evidence-based alternative uh, practitioners <clears throat> to learn about other things they can bring to the table to help their patients, right? It's about helping your patients at the end of the day, making them, healing them, making them healthier, regardless of how you do it. Um, and, and, and along those lines, they are not taught any, 25% of your medical schools are taught, and this is, plays a part as well, 25% of your medical schools have any kind of nutritional class, and it's very generic, of course. You know, here are the five food groups. They don't talk anything about how to cure disease and, and help your immune system. There's yeah, no the such- Dr. Greger book said there was only one class. He, he did some analysis of med school programs, and he think, I think there was something like a three-hour credit of the entire program was devoted to nutrition. Yeah, and according to the National Academy of Science, 27% of your schools have that. So, so pretty much three-quarters don't have anything. There's an area that it's critically important is there's no integrative standard of care. There's a conventional standard of care, but there's no integrative or alternative standard of care. So as you said, there are people out there who will try and tell you to scratch your left earlobe at three in the morning on Tuesdays and Thursdays and tell you that's going to cure cancer. No, it won't. But there's evidence behind everything that I talk about. Uh, So major cancer, I would love it if there were major cancer centers. Again, you said magic wand that that, uh, offered conventional therapies, which were non-toxic, um, and alternative therapies, complementary therapies, including all the things we talked about, science-based, evidence-based, based on objective criteria, nutritional approaches, supplementation, exercise, mind-body, stress reduction, uh, providing social support, which is important. Because when someone's told they have cancer, uh, they think their life is over frequently. They see their mortality and they become very depressed. So social support is critically important. So major cancer centers offering the things that we're talking about would be wonderful. Uh, making sure that medical education brought these things into the classroom in a meaningful way. These other therapies. It's about healing people. Doesn't matter if the FDA says it works or not. These other things do work. 
I, it's not just 20 people that I interviewed. That's a microcosm. I've met well over 500 people who were told by major cancer centers. Think about your major cancer centers. Yes, those centers who told people you got a short expiration date. And many of them, when they <clears throat> changed their approach, when they self-advocated, and there was a commonality between these people as well, Sean. Many of them had a fighting spirit. They had a no-quit attitude. <clears throat> they were assertive. Um, think about it. When people are told they have cancer, I think the world's divided into three sectors. One sector might be, <clears throat> oh, well, I guess my life is over. They draw the blinds and put their head under a pillow. A second group might say, let's assume there's a couple there. And one spouse may say to the other, hey, honey, let's go travel to Europe. We've never been there. Well, I have a little, a little bit of time left. And perhaps that third group says, you know what? I I'm not buying it totally. There are outliers out there. There are exceptions. There are people who have beaten the odds. And let's do some research. Maybe I can be one of those people. Well, it's not about luck. It's about finding the appropriate therapies and treatments with sophisticated. Well, I, I, I wonder if there's some some selection bias there, though, because like, obviously, yeah, you will never see those people that just roll over and give up. They're not going to make it into the set of people that you interviewed. Those 20 folks that you interviewed that were, you know, the outliers who beat all the odds. Uh, I feel like, of course, they're going to share that fighting spirit because they wouldn't be there otherwise. So uh, I, I don't doubt that what you're saying is true, but I think like having that attitude alone probably isn't the key. It's just one of the components along with everything else that you just talked about, right? Like that aggregation of marginal gains, um, that it's, it's, it's an essential component, but it's not sufficient on its own to, to save you, if that makes sense. Well, uh, it, it, you know, we can say the word, um, certainly, obviously I was, I was picking people that, have had great results. But I just know from my own experience at, at being with being at 30 conferences and talking to many, many, many dozens of integrative practitioners, complementary practitioners, alternative practitioners who have hundreds and hundreds of, of people as well and reading over a hundred books in the cancer world, that there are thousands of people out there who have quote unquote, to use a cliche, beat the odds. And it's, again, it's not based on luck. I talk, I've talked to a couple of conventional oncologists who said, oh, well, it's just, you're just lucky. It's not luck. There's a rationale behind it. You said that they were going to die, but they're here 20 years later. Why are they here? Let's reverse engineer what they did. So having the fighting spirit, the inner resolve, uh, self-advocating, the concept of hope is critical. Knowing people have walked in your shoes is critical. Uh, compliance and when you realize you have a cancer diagnosis, uh, don't forget to breathe. Just take your time. Take your time. And then start putting together a plan, a team, an intentionally focused approach. And realize one thing you must realize is when the doctor says you may have three to six months to live, you are not a statistic. That's critically important. You are not a stat. You're not a statistic. You're an individual. And you can alter the disease process by making some changes that the conventional world does not recognize. So implementation of these other therapies is critically important. They are not educated in these other approaches. You go to medical school, you're indoctrinated, you, there's, it's a dogmatic approach. There's great things about conventional medicine. Look, if you're in a car accident, get to the emergency room. I'm not gonna tell you that you should take curcumin and, and lie in bed at home, get to the emergency room. 
right? But there's ways to certainly enhance outcomes dramatically that are not utilized and recognized by the conventional world. Right. And so what I'm taking from this and what you're saying is in the realm of cancer, that being an advocate in, in involves doing the research, taking the advice, like listening to the input of your doc, and then comparing that with what else is known out there. And not necessarily, I feel like a lot of times people will bestow like deity like powers, you know, like just take whatever they say is gospel and okay, then it must be, you know, radiation that, that I need or chemo that I need. Uh, instead, it sounds like evaluate that, take that and say, okay, I hear your advice and I'm going to go seek out alternate opinions and we're going to take all this stuff together and do what the science says here. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I, I strongly encourage people to get various opinions, not just from three conventional oncologists, but okay, go to your oncologist or the oncologist who, who is recommended to you. Go to an integrated practitioner. Go to a, go to a naturopath. Go to various people and listen and then digest. Like, go with the approach that you feel most comfortable with. But just, just be careful about that. There are different attitudes when it comes to medicine, healing, and healthcare practices. If conventional medicine was all that it was, was the, the end-all answer, I guess we wouldn't have that much cancer. More people are dying from cancer every single year. We don't have the answers. Yes, it is complex. But if we can make it just a, a chronic issue that you can live with for 20, 30 years, the rest of your life, where it does not spread, that's certainly an approach. We often hear about these, these pink campaigns, you know, and, and, oh, we're going to eliminate cancer in the next couple of years. I'm sorry to say that, truth be told, that's not going to happen. But we can certainly find ways to enhance the probabilities and save lives. It's complex. But, yes, get many opinions. Okay. So, and once again, to reel it back to the potential solutions here. So we've, we've, we've scoped the problem. We've talked about some of the ramifications of it. And now we're looking at like what could potentially be built by our members that could actually have uh, an effect here. And to me, things involve uh, either making it economically non-viable for those entities that are bad performers or uh, awareness. It sounds like I don't think we're going to stop the inertia of this giant apparatus that's out there. So I think that's almost kind of off the table in this case. So it, it comes down to, it sounds like two different stakeholders here. There's the doctors, there's some education that happens by this machinery. So it's clearly biased in one direction. So maybe some type of campaign that would reach X percent of these doctors and begin to educate them on, on some of the nutritional based approaches that we're talking about. Um, and then there's the direct to consumer, you know, just an awareness campaign of getting things like nutritionfacts.org out to more people, getting your book out to more people. Um, I mean, does that seem like a rational approach or can you, is there, is there something I'm missing here in terms of what, how we can move the needle here? Well, I think, it, I think it's multifaceted, you know, it, it, I don't think it's yeah. a single, a singular approach. I mean, I think, look, education is always critical and, and you know, we can define education many ways. People who were, uh, uh, in science-based worlds, you know, medical education in medical schools, uh, young doctors who are coming out. Um, you mentioned my book. Yeah, I mean, I think that can open a lot of eyes uh, up. And uh, there were doctors. What about who, getting people to care? Like, I guess to me, like, I wouldn't have read your book had I not known you were writing it. Uh, because cancer does not affect me right now, even though it has, like, my aunt 
died from lung cancer when she was 33. So like it has affected our family. Uh, I have another family member, as you know, who is affected by it. So it, it has a secondary like effect on me in a, you know, indirectly, but I have not personally had to deal with it, thankfully. Um, so I think getting people though, when I read your book, it says like, well, you don't need to wait until you have a terminal diagnosis to make some of these changes that give you a better outcome. So getting people to care about it before they are hit in the face with it, I think is also could be another avenue here. It's just like awareness of this stuff before it's a problem. Yeah, I, I, no, I, I agree in terms of taking care of our bodies and our health, certainly as we, as we, as we age. But I think as a matter of, of reality, I think most people don't think about, I didn't think about cancer until it impacted my family. I've just lived my life. I, I think a lot of people don't think about heart disease or cancer or diabetes unless it impacts them directly or their family members. Uh, but like, like we've discussed, cancer, you know, everyone at, at a certain age and older knows someone who has cancer or, or was dealt with cancer. Um, but it, it, it all goes down to education, attitude. Um, you know, we talk about the economics. Uh, and again, I'm not 100 percent. I'm not against certain conventional approaches if they're done in a certain way and incorporate all the other things which will uh, significantly enhance outcomes. Uh, just a conventional approach is like a martial-like approach. It's kind of like a warlike approach. Let's attack these cancer cells and attack the tumor. But the other approaches are talking about enhancing the immune system. Because uh, if you attack, 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 you ultimately, there'll be collateral damage, like in a regular war. And the collateral damage is your body. And, and uh, we need to enhance that internal pharmacy, if you will. In other words, our immune system uh, in all these various ways. Cool. Rick, we are coming right up to the one hour mark. So I'll just ask one more question here. You have two minutes with someone who's been terminally diagnosed with cancer. What do you tell them? I tell them <clears throat> that um, they are not a statistic, regardless of someone telling them that they are terminal and they have a short time frame to live. I tell them that I have met people personally. I've got two minutes. Um, I've met people personally who have had brain cancer, pancreatic cancer, <clears throat> colon, breast, prostate, ovarian, you name it, who are here 15, 20, 25 years later. I tell them that it's hard, but they need to try to find that inner resolve. I may say to them, not because I'm trying to sell a book, but to read this book, here are 20 stories, real people. I would tell them that there is hope. I tell them that we need to come up with a plan, take a deep breath, another deep breath, and then move forward in a positive direction because many have walked in your shoes before and confounded the experts and who are thriving many years later and doing very well. And where, so speaking of the book, where can people read this? I know you have a website for it. Where, where would you like to send folks that are listening? Uh, you know, on the website, there's some information and the website's hopeneverdies.com. Again, hopeneverdies.com. They can buy the book if they like on Amazon or they can go to their local bookstore. And if it's not at the bookstore, they can request it and order it. And uh, that's how they can access the book. And what about if people want to get in touch with you and have questions, is there anywhere we can send them, maybe a LinkedIn or a social media or email? I, I would say, uh, yeah, good question. I would say go to the website, hopeneverdies.com, and you can access me directly through hopeneverdies.com. You can uh, email me through that site and contact me. I'll get back to you. Cool. Awesome. Well, Rick, 
thank you for the 25 X plus years of work that you've done on this, uh, getting an insane amount of knowledge here and putting it out there via your book. Super helpful. And, uh, thank you for your time today and sharing with our listeners. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Sean. I appreciate it. Thank you. Cheers. You've been listening to the problematic podcast. To get involved and propose a project idea of your own or to join in the discussion around one of the projects proposed during the show, visit problematic.app. That's problematic.app. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and leave a rating and review on your favorite platform. Until next time, be the change.